and welcome to The Word is Resistance, a podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, conditions that describe the United States for the past 600 years for people of color. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Nicola Torbett, and I'm based in Oakland, California. And I'm Vahisha Hassan, and I am based in Memphis, Tennessee. This is the fifth week of Lent, a time when Christians journey with Jesus toward his execution by the state, aided and abetted by religious leaders on Good Friday. We recognize that Jesus is still being crucified daily in black and brown bodies. That's why we are dedicating this Lenten season to thinking together about how we can dismantle white supremacy. Each week, we'll be gathering a different group of theologians and writers, movement activists, and thinkers to discuss the lectionary scriptures with that task in mind. Welcome to the conversation. Today, we are joined by several contributors to the Lenten devotional recipients. I would love to have each participant say their, their full name and where they are coming from. We'll have Anne and Monica, Melissa and Cheryl in that order. Hi, I'm Anne Dunlap and I am in the place currently called Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Monica Leak and I am active, currently in the place called Waldorf, Maryland. Hello, my name is Melissa Mason, and I am in a small county called Matthews County in Virginia. This is Cheryl Beard, and I am located in Memphis, Tennessee. Awesome. Thank you. On this podcast, we'll be discussing the lectionary text for Sunday, March 18th. music and things happening right now. All right. So what we're going to do together and during our time together is one, I just want to thank you on behalf of Nicola and I for participating in this Lenten devotional, something that had never been done in this context before. And we are just grateful for, you know, your, your trusting us and your vulnerability in your expressions. So I'm going to read, um, I usually say a small excerpt, but it's probably not going to be as small this go round. <laughs> um, it just was a lot of rich text and information. And I want to, for those who have the book and don't have the book, I want them to hear the context of what we're going to discuss. So I'm going to read a portion uh, from each submission, from each contributor, and then have you give us your inspiration, like how you, how you got to this expression, and then anything else you would like us for us to know about that process or um, anything around that information. So we're going to start with Anne. Uh, Anne's submission was from John 12, verse 25, and the title says, White Folk, 
Are we brave enough? The scripture is, those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal. I'm starting midway, and it reads as follows. What if Jesus is addressing this to the Greeks precisely because of their privilege? As if to say, are you ready for what it takes to be part of this movement? If you love your Greek life, that's death. But if you hate what Greekness does to you, then that's life forever. If you really want to, quote unquote, see me, to follow me, that's the deal. What if that's what Jesus means? You close out to say, if we as white folk want to be accomplices in the movement toward collective liberation, then this is a teaching for us. We have to be willing to let the way of whiteness go. Like the ways we white folk, especially middle and upper class white folk, rely on policing to keep us safe, ignoring how the system of policing historically and presently acts violence against black and brown bodies as a means of protecting whiteness stunting our capacity to imagine other ways of being community together, ways that are transformative and center full human dignity for all. What if we white folk let that go, let it die? That may feel like death to us. So much is unknown when we begin shedding the ways of whiteness. Who are we without it? How do we move and breathe and live? Who are our people now? You talk about the good news of Jesus, this aspect of death that leads to no life, death that leads to no life and no generation, but then the death that leads to life. And you say that the seed allowed to go fallow under the earth and generate new life, the acorn that produces the oak, the grain of corn that produces a stalk full of ears of corn, death that generates life. I think that's what Jesus means by eternal life. If we hate whiteness enough to let it die, or said another way, do we love humanity and the earth more than whiteness? Do we love black and brown life more than whiteness? Do we love freedom more than whiteness? And Jesus might say, do you love me and my brown colonized poor refugee persecuted, targeted by the state body more than whiteness, then we will keep generating life, life without beginning and end, life generating more life. Beloved white folk, can we be brave enough to let whiteness die? Now, do y'all see why I had to read all of that? Goodness gracious. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. Thank you in advance. But if you will tell us from where this inspiration comes from and what you what more you would have us to know. Well, sure. And I have to say, Mahisha, it's quite the experience to hear my words come out of your mouth. So <laughs> um, I'm a bit moved in the moment. So thank you. Um, thank you for that. Um, my inspiration. Um, for uh, for for what I ended up writing, I think first comes from my own awareness of my location as a as a white um, as a white woman in in our society and wanting uh, to 
read the text with that eye that often um, these texts weren't written for someone with the kind of systemic uh, location and power that I have as a white person. Um, and so to really be mindful of the dynamics that are at play in the text and, um, and, and my own positioning as a reader of those texts. From there, um, it was looking, you know, specifically at John's gospel and um, at first being excited because here's, here's this little statement that Jesus makes that shows up in um, very similar forms across all four gospels. And I'd already done a podcast on the Matthew version of that. And I was super excited because I was just going to get to reuse that and, and not have to work very hard. Um, but as I looked closer, I realized John's doing something very different, which John is always doing. Um, Hello. Yeah. Uh, his context in which he puts these words in Jesus' mouth is completely different from the other three Gospels, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are using that, um, that statement of his in the context of Jesus organizing his own community, his, his own people, um, to do the to do the work to go out um, into the community and and continue that work. So he's talking to like his insider crew, the people that he's been working with and eating with and traveling with and um, and organizing. Um, and in John, that's not what happens at all. Um, we have the the setup as these Greek folks coming in and wanting to see Jesus. Um, and when I realized that it was completely different. Um, I had to sit with what that difference might mean um, and just let that work on me and yell at John a little bit for having to change things up all the time. Um, why ever he does that, <laughs> I do not know. Um, but, but I had to sit with it and sit with the possibility that he was speaking to outsiders, speaking to outsiders um, from his community, outsiders who would have, um, would have had more privilege um, systemically in the context of the Roman Empire than he and his people did. And so in realizing that, I realized that that was actually a word for somebody like me as a white person who holds um, maybe analogous kinds of systemic power and, and what that had to mean for us um, as white people and to sit in the discomfort of that. And so I think what I would want people to know um, and to remember as they're, as they're um, sitting with this text, for white people in particular, that we have to take seriously that possibility um, and that this word is meant for us uh, in our particular location, even when it makes us uncomfortable and asks hard things of us, um, but that that's the work that we are called to do um, and that it's a constant choice, uh, life or death. You choose life or death. Um, do you choose life or do you choose whiteness? Uh, and 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 to to hold that with um with real seriousness, even when it asks hard things of us. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes. Ooh, okay, sorry about that. Um, asking hard things is is a theme there, and I think that that's a lesson for all of us, or at least something that we can process. And I appreciate it, Joy. I know the words originally came out of, of my very black female presenting mouth. Um, but I appreciate you from your positioning, right? From your place of positioning that 
it's interesting because um, in the last podcast, we talked a little bit about um, these different different theologies and how like theology is like in really taught as accepted, but it's white theology, right? Um, but then right. every other theology is labeled by what it is in respects to not being white, basically. Um, and so, but your positioning is still important that you see it from that way, but you came from a place of whiteness, not like, let me dominate this conversation, but let me actually review this from with with a power analysis, basically. Um, and I also just personally appreciated that you called Jesus an organizer. Um, <laughs> from being an organizer, <laughs> being an organizer, that just that just made my day and gave me a little more a little more affirmation. And, and to your point, presenting as being yes, and thank you. And I hope that. This is a call to bravery um, that is answered by your folk. So we're going to keep on trying. Thank you. I'll keep on trying. All right. Thank you. Next, we will hear from Monica. So Monica actually has two submissions uh, this this week, and they are both both um, poetic in nature. So I'm just going to read um, one of the first excerpts. She comes from Psalms 51, the 51st Psalm. And it's verse 1 through 12. And she can correct me or, or um, uh, elaborate, but it seems to be this beautiful, this beautiful artistic expression of what the psalm is saying in its fullness. And, I, and I, just, I just love it. And it resonates with me. And she entitles it, Have Mercy. So this is the excerpt. I'm just reading the, the beginning. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Have mercy on me for raising a symbol of hate and not understanding my brother's and sister's pain. Have mercy on me for failure to acknowledge racism's ugly existence. Just because I have not encountered it doesn't doesn't mean someone has not had the experience. Have mercy on me, O God, for aligning with structures and systems that oppress, shaking my head nonchalantly, yelling, get a job, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, not knowing that there are communities different from mine, lacking access to basic necessities, living in vast food deserts with limited housing options, yet liquor stores and fast food joints remain abundant. Oh God, have mercy. Have mercy on me for missed opportunities to work alongside my brothers and sisters for a cause, focusing on me, my four, and no more. I've got to get mine, and you've got to get yours. Have mercy on me for my get-over-it attitude when promises made since emancipation still unfulfilled leave a people destitute. Have mercy on me for only joining in fellowship community service and prayer just a few hours in January on the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Have mercy on me, oh God. I'm, I'm just pausing. <laughs> I'm just pausing in this moment as even those words wash over me and I hear this cry and this plea and I just would love Monica to hear more how you came about this inspiration and what more but it's, it's like another page and a half left of, of poetic expression. So I would love to hear any, anything other that you would have us to know from where this came from within you. Um, well, I am a native 
of North Carolina. Um, both of my parents were HBCU grads, active in the civil rights movement early on. And so I have that grounding in faith and history and the stories from my parents and both being in ministry combined to where I am now creatively. And so I've been writing um, poetry for years and, you know, I've taken this path that has um, led me to doing more storytelling um, in my writing. And so this passage and, you know, reading the kind of the context and the history of it, I felt like I made a personal connection and it's not, you know, yes, it's an Old Testament text, but it has ramifications for us as African-Americans, as, you know, Native Americans, as Hispanic Americans, that all of us can connect with some issue where we have, you know, failed in addressing a situation and um, not taking opportunity to lift our voices mm. in support and in solidarity of another. When you've had the opportunity to help a sister or brother, but you turn your head or look away or refrain from making that eye contact. You know, the, the moment just reading just the passage, it's like, it's a lament that, you know, God have mercy on me. You know, I feel like there's, there's a judgment, there's a responsibility that we have and that a, there's a judgment for not doing what we know is right. We're acknowledging it in some way. So this was like a prayer mm. to some extent that for all of those moments, for all of those times when I, you know, turned and walked away, the, all those times I ignored and watched, you know, watched people be belittled and shamed and downgraded and for all those moments. Like God have mercy. I heard, I heard the the prayer clearly. I heard the the remorse clearly, and I was intrigued because I think I assumed, obviously knowing that you are of some African descent, I was like, well, who's she speaking from? Is she talking about her? Like it did at first. It, it, I wasn't quite sure if you were coming from this place. But I think that still makes sense that we all have these moments in some way that we do that. And it might get into our motivations or it might get into our lived experiences or our kind of shared ability to try to protect ourselves. But um, to the extent of like what Anne asked, what are we willing to be brave about and, and be willing to give up? And that comes from oppressor and oppressed alike. Right. Um, it just, you know, different, different perspectives but that response some of that responsibility is still there but how do we if you're if you're on the oppressed side like how do you survive <laughs> at the same time that you're you know trying to to be brave because sometimes for me brave just means getting home you know mm -hmm. with an encounter with an encounter some of those times so I appreciate that and I'm um loved hearing from that space I'm also a native North Carolinian 
um, from <laughs> from Charlotte. So I can appreciate that that voice in the space as well. Thank you. Thank you for that, Monica. We'll hear from you again because you have another submission in just a sec. So now we're going to hear from my wonderful Melissa, who uh, both Melissa and Monica, actually, I met at um, Princeton Theological Seminary during the um, BTLI, which is the Black Theological Leadership Institute. We were there in 2016, just amazing, doing amazing work. Um, and Melissa came from John 12, 20 through 33. Her expression is entitled, Seek serve savior and she like um uh reverend beard reverend sharon bill that we'll hear from in a second gave us quite a history lesson so let's dig on it <laughs> she says in this world of hatred against race religion gender and anything deemed different as a mother you always question did you do enough say enough about such things to keep your children safe Despite these efforts, you can never say enough or do enough to guarantee their safety. It was late summer when my middle son called me extremely upset. He had his first experience with racial profiling. While he shares, I sit in silence, trembling on the inside, tears streaming. The police stopped him and stated that his vehicle did not stop at the stop sign. They inquired if he had any guns in his possession. His car was searched. He was searched. While dressing him, one police officer kept his hand on his gun while the others patted him down and rifled through the car. Thankfully, my son was able to share his story. Sadly, there are many who have not lived to tell the story of their encounters with the police. When and how does it end? When will our black and brown children not be targets of police brutality? When and how will our black and brown children not be subjected to unfair treatment, stereotypes, and racial prof profiling under the guise of keeping the neighborhood safe? You close with finally, the work of justice was the work of Jesus while on earth giving honor to the creator of all things and all humankind. It gave honor to God, regardless of what we have seen and heard and regardless of what we may see in the future, there is still hope. Let it be understood that the greatness of America will not be by the exclusion, exemption, or elimination of my black and brown brothers and sisters. But the greatness of this nation and this entire world rests with the creator of this earth and all that is within. The work of justice on this earth today, the work of justice for the oppressed, the work of justice against the evil of white supremacy, police brutality, and against all evil must be done for the sake of justice. In order to do this work, in order to fight this fight, we must seek the solutions, seek the creator, serve each other, serve the creator, and have faith in the savior. I feel like we need to do the benediction because I just, I just had church just like all right there. <laughs> so thank you, Melissa. Please tell us how you got here and maybe give us some local context for it as well. Um, 
I got there out of that moment with my son. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, it happened in the summer, but reading the text brought me back to that. Um, I live in a small rural area in Virginia. Um, where the Confederate flag still flies. Mm-hmm. When you enter into the county, there's a great big flag. Uh, some says it's about history, but it's a representation of exclusion and hate. And it get, it's giving testimony to that. But what I saw in the text was that Jesus' journey on this earth was given testimony to something else. And that was out of, in the passage where it shares that the Greeks came looking in order to get to the point of a solution. It's not going to be the exclusion. It's not going to be the hatred that drives it. It's not going to be young men and women like my son who was pulled over because of appearance. Right. The second thing that came out of it was my professor at uh, when I was at the San Diego Chapel School of Theology at the Union, Dr. Robert Rafa Wanaka wrote a book that says Am I Still My Brother's Keeper? And so while we're on this of trying to correct a great wrong that's in, this, in history, it's going to take all people to be accountable for each other, to be willing to serve one another. Because if we talk about the creator that we serve, that we are created in God's own image. We, not one group. Right. And so that, that takes us seeking to find the God that we say that we serve. And, and, and it may even it's, it's talk about ecumenical work of inclusiveness because it's not going to, I said in, in the writing, that it's not going to be just white or black. It's not going to be just Republican or Democrat. But it's going to take all people. And, and it could be that what it looks like is thinking outside the box that it may be even the people who don't may not recognize yet the God that we serve. That's an excellent point because I mean, part of the power analysis, even faith becomes a place of exclusion oftentimes. And mm-hmm. somehow we feel a spiritual authority to exclude people. <laughs> um, and that's right. not helpful in, in, in both liberation from a collective standpoint or just getting free, period, for those who are directly impacted and oppressed at this moment. So, you know, this is what is at stake and we can't use, we can't, we can't, or we shouldn't be reproducing the powers that we have seen oppress people to, to continue to oppress. So, so thank you. I don't, that Confederate flag situation, I've been traveling a whole bunch as everybody on here probably knows. And it always kind of throws me off. I don't even understand almost how we live in a place where the flag can be flown in a country that's supposed to 
represent this union. I mean, like the United States of America, but it's okay. It's patriotic even to fly a flag that represents, you know, disconnect from that from the union on the means of oppressing a group of people. Um, so that always amazes me. And I, I can't understand what I can, but I just, that's a lot for you to have to function within every day. And I know that you move in spaces of government. So I can imagine that's a difficult process. It is because to me that in itself is a form of terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. Under the guise of history and under the guise of trying to reframe it in all these multiple and many ways. And then when we are not able to own the narrative, then that's what persists as opposed to the voices of, of, of those impacted in, in different ways. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I hope that people hear this podcast and hear your regional positioning and hear, hear the pain of your, that phone call from your son and hear what it feels like to walk into a government building every day under a cloud of, of domestic terrorism. I hope that that's really heard and felt and understand what that feels like in a black brown body every day. Cause that's the deal. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now hear from uh, Cheryl Beard. I met Cheryl since I moved to Memphis, Tennessee. I am so grateful for having to know you already. I've only been there eight or nine months, but you quickly put me in and gave me a beautiful sisterhood and enveloped me in, in some love that I needed. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, you came from Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. Now it's titled, We Need a New Covenant. And you do expand on that greatly, but I feel like you, it should be titled, Let Me Give You the Real Deal History Lesson. And <laughs> it, is so, it is so good. It is so chock full of history, but I love the fact that it's a history from your direct lens. Like you were like, no, so this is not history from history books. This is like my history, her story kind of situation. And you presented it in such a way. So you start um, talking about growing up in the, in the 60s and the 70s, the things that you've witnessed over time and getting into it um, 100 years after the Civil War. I mean, you really walk through like Reconstruction, the Voting Rights Act, Dr. King, civil rights, black power. You get into the second reconstruction of the 1970s. You go into the, the 2008 election of then President Barack Obama. And then you bring it all the way home in today about, you know, this present generation of, of activism and, and wokeness, if you will. So I'm going to read all of that happened before what I'm about to read. Okay. So <laughs> you get into what is the a term a third reconstruction. And I really want to read this part because I don't know how familiar lots of people across the country are with this concept. And I think it's genius and the way that you discussed it was so great. You say that Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II declares we are now in a third reconstruction era. He surmises that this is a, quote, a profoundly moral awakening of justice-loving people in a fusion coalition powerful enough to reclaim the possibility of democracy, even in the face of corporate financed ex extremism, end quote. His premise calls for uniting a broad base of ethnically, economically, sexually, and religiously diverse people 
I agree, this is in your words, I agree that a moral movement may bring the kind of connection necessary to sustain progress toward freedom and justice. You, you then kind of give a context for what you are describing as moral, what that means, um, and then framing the first and second reconstruction under legal requirements. Then you walk through the, the, the covenant that God established with Israel through Moses, then talking about this new covenant that was established through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So you gave us a history lesson, a spiritual lesson, a covenant lesson. I just feel like I'm a student right now. You close with a new covenant is needed in the U.S. We need an approach to justice and equity that is not simply about laws. Immoral people can write unjust laws. We need a movement that reaches the tipping point of our citizenry, transforming the moral fiber of each heart with the power of agape love. Ashe and amen to the third reconstruction. Let's pray that the third time's the charm. Gracious. Tell us more, Ms. Cheryl. Bless you, Sister uh, Vahisha, uh, and, and my uh, new transplant to Memphis sister. Yes. Um, I, I wrote all of that um, history lesson to really uh, trying to give the context of why we need a, a new covenant. Um, yes. That's my 31 passage just spoke to, to what I've experienced in my lifetime, and it resonated with uh, what I came to believe philosophically as, as a young adult in Memphis. Um, as you said, I was born during the, the climax of the civil rights movement, 61. I grew up uh, during the second reconstruction period, as it's called, um, all in the deep south of Augusta, Georgia. And uh, then after uh, college at Fisk University, which of course is an HBC that's been at the center of social change from its very beginning, in uh, 1866, and I moved from Nashville Fisk, to Memphis, Tennessee in the 80s. Uh, Memphis, a, a, a city that uh, was still steeped uh, in racial polarization and a place that was still and perhaps is still reeling from uh, its legacy as the Calvary of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, mm. And then, so, so with all of that experience, and then even up to now, as we are this year, in this uh, season, uh, commemorating MLK 50, right? The 50th uh, anniversary of Dr. King's uh, assassination, and even the upcoming 50th anniversary of the last major civil rights federal uh, legislation uh, that followed quickly his death, um, I, I can say that I lived through and, and have memory of the happenings of all those 50 years. And so I'm a witness, right? Um, mm -hmm. What I witnessed uh, as those times changed was that laws were passed, were being implemented, but racist attitudes and practices were still operating. Uh, I witnessed black people being uh, disappointed <laughs> that the more things seemed to change, the more they stayed the same, um, seeming to feel a, a, a bit blindsided and uh, bamboozled in seeking mm -hmm. the fact to say that we had overcome. Uh, I, I witnessed black people abandoning our communal practices. Um, 
and our values and, and taking on the individual, individualistic culture of the, of the empire, as, as we say, um, going toward the get mine versus fighting and struggling together, that our practices and attitudes then uh, began to change. And so, um, you know, supremacists uh, and those who are unjust will find ways around laws and, you know, they just simply disregard the laws altogether. Um, and, and, and that what being walked out kind of brought on then that, that disappointment and disillusionment, I think, that um, I then saw in my own people. And so Jeremiah's mm-hmm. of, of what then Jesus would bring, right, to the um, children of Israel, um, um, this new covenant, to me, perfectly expressed what I recognized about racism uh, in this country in my 20s as I was in Memphis and coming into kind of the real world, you know, of, of work and life on my own, um, that passing laws provided a path to freedom, but that, mm-hmm. that, didn't, that did not cure racism uh, because people's hearts and minds did not change for the most part, right? Um, and, and what I know is that white supremacy then is sin. And what I learned is that the only antidote to, for sin is Jesus, right? Um, and so that the answer to dismantling white supremacy for me is ultimately found in, in him and uh, what he taught, what he lived out and what he expects then, what he brought to the world and what he expects us to carry on. And so um, as the Bible says, the fulfillment of the law then that Jesus brought is centered in love, centered in agape love. Um, and, and so especially for those of us who uh, profess to know love and follow Jesus Christ, the dismantling of white supremacy uh, must be tied to, anchored in, fulfilled through um, what he called then the greatest commandment, um, which is that, that new covenant. Um, uh, it's essential for and the new covenant, this um, uh, agape love and understanding of loving Lord our God with our, whole, our heart, soul, mind, strength, neighbor as ourselves is essential for both the one who is the white supremacist or oppressor and it's essential for the oppressed. Um, it's all, to me, it's like the great equalizer <laughs> of humanity. Uh, uh, for the oppressor, then the emphasis is on loving neighbor as self on that part of it, especially. It's about the golden rule um, is where the emphasis, I think, in that that uh, commandment has to be for the oppressor uh, to treat others as I want to be treated, uh, to see non-white people as equal humans uh, for the oppressor. And then for the oppressed or for people of color, um, I think the focus is on as I love myself <laughs> um, because for us, uh, the equalization has to be about self-worth, about not seeing oneself as less than and seeing white people as better than because, uh, you know, we cooperate. Um, I've heard uh, Diane Nash uh, say this, of course, who's a great Fiskite, that, you know, the oppressor um, has to cooperate, the oppressed, I'm sorry, cooperates with the oppressor in order for it to be effective, uh, that there's a role that both play 
in that dance. Um, and so uh, the, the, the new covenant, I think, speaks to both oppressor and, and, and the oppressed. Um, and for the, those who are um, oppressed, who are black, I think black self-love um, is, is key. We, um, ha- I've seen us operate with an eagerness to be accepted uh, by white people, by the dominant culture. Um, mm-hmm. We want what they have and believe is better. Um, um, and, and so in, in, in that, so- sometimes we have missed then um, the injustice and we misinterpret motives. Um, and we've got to learn to promote our own agenda and our own welfare, right? Before um, we're trying to seek approval and loving um, those who are oppressing us, who, who um, are the white supremacists, we need to love ourselves, love self mm-hmm. a, as we love um, our neighbor. One of the ways I saw uh, or heard about it, so one of friends of mine from Innovation Church here in Memphis uh, told me about an incident that happened up in the Fraser area um, with law enforcement. And so around the whole policing piece, what, what then I think agape love looks like and um, uh, it walked out even in policing. Uh, some of their members were out doing some evangelistic work. They happened to see this young uh, African-American man and, and woman, and uh, the young man was um, physically abusing the young lady. They were in, into it, and he was, you know, going after her. And they did what, and during my day, black folk would do, is they stepped in as community and mm-hmm. to stop him. And they talked to him and trying to talk him down and find out what's going on at, I, I cannot remember if somebody called, they called the police or the police happened by, happened to be a white policeman, uh, but who understood community policing. And so hmm. he didn't stop and come with guns blazing. He stopped and listened. He became a part of the conversation with them, uh, did not arrest the young man, but ended up joining in prayer in the prayer circle with them oh, as they prayed okay. for this young man and as they counseled him about Look, man, you lose your job. You need to go to work. You know, just talking to him real deal um, and did not bring what we are used to in this day and time from the police. And wow. to me, that's love, that's love in action. He said he was a believer, believer the policeman did, and he brought uh, this white police officer, brought being a believer to the practice of policing in that community. I am... Amazed. One, I'm familiar with Frazier. I think I'm Frazier adjacent in my relation to Memphis um, living right now, so I can understand what that context is mm-hmm. it's like. And I, I have so many thoughts about this. So Nicola and Ann, who are both on the line, are we're working um, on a subcommittee of, of Surge, which is showing up for racial justice. Um, we have a Surge Faith subcommittee, and we're typically and is spearheading this this um, conversation and covenant, even to, to talk about covenants, um, covenants around around white congregations and churches and faith groups, reimagining what policing can look like in that context and what that can look like. And I think you just gave us a beautiful example. Now the therapist in me is also still both concerned about the young woman who was who was um, violence was happening to her, and so right. I would. Hope 
there was just as much prayer and love wrapped around her as was, um, you know, the man that was that was violating her. But I do love the approach, at least the, both that the community stepped in as community. We're like, at, from an perspective. That's what we're used to, right? We're used to policing a lot in in, in the term of um, kind of policing ourselves, but policing from a place of safety, like actual safety, not the law enforcement, which is which is what we're dealing with now. Um, and then, yeah. So I just I just would want obviously the same community love and support given given to her. And specifically, I think it's something nuanced and beautiful about the fact that I know we're talking about the fifth week of Lent, but we're taping on International Women's Day and we have Mm -hmm. a round of women on the phone. (laughs) And I think that there's beautiful, yeah, in that. And I love hearing that perspective and thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Before I move on to Monica's last thing, I'm going to say kind of what I was going to say at the end, but I think this policing aspect has come up in every everybody's expression. So Anne talked about the bravery of rethinking and reimagining what policing can look like. And I think we have to keep this in the forefront of, of this Lenten time and talking about dismantling white supremacy and talking about whiteness itself. And as you said, whiteness as it shows up in white folk, but whiteness as it shows up in non-white folk, <laughs> meaning it's held up as the standard and the measure of all things. And at what point are we loving ourselves and seeing value in ourselves? that's not based on the measure and standard of whiteness and I think that's really 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 important um yeah and then the uh, the have mercy um with Monica talking about you know potentially watching or being aware of brutality or just situations or something that's happening and asking for a mercy place but to do better the next time and be more aware and convicted of that Melissa and that call from her son while he was clearly racially profiled and stopped and searched and all these things. And thankfully he lived to even call his mom. But how scary is that, you know, to, for the police to not be a place of safety for your son and police to not be a place of safety for your black brown skin. And that is where we are. That is the reality of that. And that's not even good for these black and brown skinned police officers that we have. Like we are in a true conundrum and I think we all need to do some reevaluation. Um, and then thank you, Cheryl, for that new covenant and almost that we need to have with ourselves and a new covenant with the police and a new covenant with our environment and, and new covenants need to happen all the way around. And I think Anne can correct me. We just had a covenant ceremony, right? Isn't that what just happened Anne, um, with the policing effort? Was that, was that that merging? I can do that. I don't know if it was ceremony, but then we have a covenant something covenanting something with the congregations that, we're going to release, um, they're going to release. Like, show. Yeah, not yet, but during, but during Holy Week, where we asked the Christian congregations to make a public declaration of their commitment to reimagine their relationship to the system of policing and to, and, and commit to certain actions to, we might say like literally divest from that system. Um, and so that, that hasn't happened yet, but it's, but it is coming. So watch for it. All right. Thank you. So there will be resources available on some of that. If your congregation would like to know more about ways that you can be involved in that covenant or at least to begin the process of reimagining that will be provided. And I just can't think of a better just tie in to Monica's second piece, which is guess what? Called the coming day. Woo! 
just so good. It's just so good. Listen, when God moves, y'all, you just gotta like move with it. Ooh, oh, just makes me so happy. Okay, so Monica's last piece is called The Coming Day. It's out of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And it's rhythmic and beautiful and linguistic in its approach. I just, it's just, just one of my favorites. I'm just gonna read the beginning first portion. Uh, and then we'll hear more from me, Monica, on what led you to this expression. The coming day, chants to the beat of a drum, song in hushed tones sung. Preacher, oh preacher, what are you trying to say? There's a day a coming, there's a, there's a coming, a day. The Lord who sits high and looks low will make a new agreement with these his people. A new covenant, a new contract that the playing field becomes there's coming a day, not like the covenant of your ancestors past, where like a young child, I held them by the hand. I brought your ancestors out of their bondage and suffering, yet they broke their end of the agreement as if it didn't mean a thing. After those days, days filled with confusion, frustration, and tears, days filled with hearts full of doubt and fear, days that troubled and worried the mind, days that left immigrants and citizens behind. Days with cries for war with no efforts toward peace. Days of natural disasters, victims slow to relief. Days in which racial tensions are high. Days when police brutality is not criminalized. Days of government waste and corruption. Days when the church often appears silent without a solution. After those days, after those the days, the Lord will make a new covenant with his people. Those who have broken covenant with him, their betrothed spouse to whom there is no equal. Within their hearts, the Lord will put his law, writing the laws upon their hearts, becoming a part of them as never before. You go on to kind of chant a rhythm to that beat of that drum that you started with about, I will be their God in the coming days and they will be my people forsaking their adulterous ways. You get into just more of the greatness and majesty of God, but definitely do it in this beautiful chanting and rhythmic way for the Lord. You go through all the things that the Lord will forgive and remember no more. And it's, it's just beautiful. And I can, and being a dancer, I just want to immediately get up. I want to, I want an actual drum beat to happen <laughs> over a high beat. <laughs> I just want to get up and well, forever and just go full out like I just want to move okay <laughs> it just really does that <laughs> and I hope that it does for other other readers as well so tell us how how you beat out the melody of this expression um I thought of when I wrote that piece I thought of meeting houses you know on a plantation and mm -hmm gathering secret gatherings where you know a spirited preacher would enunciate announce you know that freedom was coming not to you know get weary that you know it's coming it's you know it's within our reaches within our grasp and you know god has not forgotten and hearing those messages and being a part of a congregation at that time who heard, you know, a message of freedom, you know, and that's where I kind of put myself in that thought and, you know, 
thinking of scripture and now you, you know, speaking to the drum beat, I can visualize and see it um, and hear it um, mm-hmm. even more so. Um, I'm about that's making- what I, I mean, it's, yeah, because I, I just, I mean, I think there's a, there is a coming day. There is a coming day of, you know, awareness, a coming day of solidarity, um, where we can no longer sit in our pockets of isolation, um, that there's a coming day of moving, you know, crossing lines of, you know, gender and race and class and sexuality of people coming together and, you know, forming collectives to do the work, you know, to do the work of justice and, you know, do the work of showing compassion and showing mercy and really being light and carriers of truth. I'm serious about this drum beat. Uh, Monica, <laughs> I will find a way for you to say these words over a drum. So when I reach out to you for this to happen, to be like, she was really serious about this. Um, and thank you. Yeah, thank you for saying this to us. I think, I think a coming day puts into light everything that we've said and has just said that there's going to be a coming day of a covenant that these churches and faith communities are going to make to to reimagine our relationship with with policing. Cheryl got into like in order for there to be a coming day, the analysis of all the days before, right? And how do we get here? What are we sitting in? And still there is a coming. Um, thank you. This was just this was just amazing and expressive. And I'm grateful for all of you fabulous, fierce women. I think I hope women is, is the correct context for everybody. I think I did that in a little earlier. Um, and I, I'm just grateful for these expressions and grateful to have this rhythmic beat and these very vulnerable expressions of even Melissa telling the story of her son and just all the things that we have all collectively been through. And I, I will go away from this with a hope about a coming day, but an active hope right, an active hope that I'm going to be a part of what it will take to work together with all of you outside of these exclusionary boundary lines that we place within ourselves, and we're going to be part of this collective work, and this day is coming, but we're also coming for the day. This is the part of the Word is Resistance podcast where we call you, our listeners, to action. You've just heard a rousing call for the coming day that we are coming for. And our call to action is the same as it has been for the entire season of Lent. We're asking you to learn about the present-day state-sanctioned killing of black and brown people by law enforcement, corrections officers, and vigilantes. 
And we're further asking you to take action to end it. We'll link to a full set of educational resources and action ideas in the transcript. Thank you for joining us this week. As always, the transcript of this episode is available on the SURGE website, that's S-U-R-J, and it will include references, credits, and copyright information, as well as a bunch of resources to support your action, because we know that you're going to answer this call. Next week, we'll be joined by another set of amazing on-the-ground theologians, so be sure to, to subscribe to this podcast, because you don't want to miss even one episode. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Paul Stewart. Thank you, Paul. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. And I am Vahisha Hassan. I shall